Hi. I think uh, the crowd is sufficient enough that I can invite you to have some coffee if you wish. Um, so, uh, uh, my name is Greg Wilhelm. I'm the executive director of City Lit Project. Uh, thanks for coming out on a beautiful Saturday in Baltimore when we only had snow like uh, 10 days ago. And um, checking out some lit. So, you might be saying to yourself, uh, why the hell are these guys here? From <laughs> And, I, and, and now, in the last five minutes, I'm kind of asking myself that too, Parker. Uh, we have uh, Jason Ockert from South Carolina, Nathan Duell from L.A., Jeff Parker from Amherst, Massachusetts. What's the connection? Well, I was um, privileged to be a graduate of the first cohort of a brand new low-residency MFA program in creative writing out of the University of Tampa. Um, Jeff was the founding director of said program. Jason is a professor and a teacher and a former mentor of mine from said program. And Nathan is a peer uh, who graduated also in the first cohort with me uh, from the University of Tampa. And we actually have Tampa, the current students represented in the audience. Um, and I'm also very uh, pleased to say that Nathan is debuting a brand new book, Friday is the Bomb, was the bomb. Um, and uh, let's see, both J uh, Jason's book, Neighbors of Nothing, um, uh, uh, Nathan's book, uh, Friday Was the Bomb, and a book that Parker translated uh, uh, entitled Senkia, is there, these are all available for sale at the Barnes & Noble area downstairs. So after this program, um, please uh, continuing chatting with these three gentlemen uh, now that you know why they're all here from the four corners of the, of the country uh, and buy some copies of the book. So, you know, it's just... Uh, as as a as a new graduate of this program, it's just uh, I'm especially honored that my three friends from uh, originally from uh, from the Tampa area that I met uh, now from all over the country are here with us today. Um, your host is another uh, friend uh, who's a brand new board member of City Lit Project, Diane Finlayson. And if you don't know the name, you'll recognize the voice because you've no doubt heard her on weekends on WYPR where she's an announcer. Um, so Diane, thanks for hosting this program. Uh, gentlemen, um, enjoy yourselves. Uh, Parker, I'll try to find your freaking car. <laughs> All right. So thanks for coming. Uh, we have some readings from our authors, and I told them I was going to, oh, maybe do a little quote from somewhere, and I thought maybe I'd do a quote from Carl Hyacin, and I was encouraged not to do that. <laughs> I was told that Harry Cruz is the author of preference for the University of Tampa program. So to start things off, uh, I'm going to give you a quote from Harry Cruz, which I think illustrates sort of the writer's life and his philosophy, which is, if you wait until you got time to write the novel, or time to write the story, or time to read the hundred thousands of books you should have already read. If you wait for the time, you will never do it, because there ain't no time. World don't want you to do that. World wants you to go to the zoo and eat cotton candy, preferably seven days a week. These guys have not been at the zoo eating cotton candy. They've been writing, and they've been doing some marvelous work which they're sharing with us today. As we mentioned, we are going to start with Jason. He's the author of Rabbit Punches and Neighbors of Nothing. His stories have appeared in many journals and anthologies. He was the recipient of the 2010 Zank 
short story collection contest and also was a nominee for the Shirley Jackson Short Fiction Award. As we heard, he teaches creative writing at Coastal Carolina University in Conway, South Carolina, and is also a professor in the University of Tampa program. So um, thank you, Jason. Please come and uh, let us hear a little of your writing. Thank you. All right. Well, I appreciate everybody showing up. I know it's pretty outside, and uh, you know, to come in here and listen to the three of us uh, say some things is, uh, you know, something we really appreciate. And I know Greg's not here, but I'm really um, happy and honored that he uh, chose the three of us to, to come together. This has been a nice reunion for us, and I'm really honored to share the stage with these guys. Um, I've been admiring their work for some time, and, and Nathan's work he's entering into the world, and so it's it's kind of a lovely uh, a lovely way for us to sort of you know Parker and I to frame uh, Nathan in this this reading. So it's it's really an honor, and we're looking forward to it. I'm going to read a, a short story from my collection called uh, Neighbors of Nothing is the name of the collection, and um, I'm just going to jump right into it. Uh, I'll probably read a little quicker than I ordinarily would because I know I have a certain amount of time, so I'm just going to roll through it. So this is a story called Insexuality. Ark went into the city to sue the woman's hands. Her name was Muir. She entered the bakery wearing a scarf and sunglasses one afternoon and pointed to a pastry filled with cream behind the glass. Ark began to fetch the pastry, and just when he had the cellophane paper firmly gripped on the item, Muir said, not that one, that one. And she pointed again, this time to a croissant, clearly on a different tray from the cream-filled pastry. Her hand had a long pointer finger, which she smudged on the glass casing, emphasizing the croissant. But when Ark retrieved it, Muir said, no, no, that's not what I meant at all. Finally, she bought a glazed donut and a cup of cranberry-flavored hot tea, which she consumed with a look of disdain, standing in the shop and gazing out the window at the autumn decorations lining the street. This became routine. Muir wanted a glazed donut every other day, and Ark was there to provide it. If Ark went for a donut first, Muir would bite her lip, considering and say, No, I don't think so, and she'd point to an everything bagel that she didn't want, and in time return to the glazed donut. Sometimes she drank flavored coffee, differently flavored by her whim. Ark didn't mind the trouble. He found her foe and decision alluring. It seemed like she didn't know what she wanted when really she just needed time to listen to her desires. He wanted to believe love worked like this. He compared himself to the glazed donut and thought, at closing, as he mopped, I'm like the glazed donut. Mir probably dates a lot. I'm not her type, certainly. I'm not handsome. I don't have a good head of hair. But that's the stuff on the outside. Inside, I'm as good as anyone. She chooses the donut in the end. I can fix my glaze. Wearing a paper hat was a requirement at the bakery. Ark knew this. He understood the dress requirements. Once, though, Muir pointed to Ark's head and said, Your hat is crooked. Then she, she pointed to a role she couldn't decide on. Ark checked his reflection in the window and colored when he saw how clownish the lopsided hat made him look. He straightened it and reached for the role she didn't want. Two days later, Ark wore a black pork pie hat, tilted just so. Muir said, offhandedly, Something about you is different. Ark beamed and whistled softly as he went from an eclair to a loaf of sourdough bread and then to the glazed donut. The boss, Mr. Darbray, reprimanded Ark and it was back to the paper hat. Still, Ark kept his pork pie hidden in an unused drawer under the counter and donned it when he saw Muir and her slow pace down the street toward the bakery. The first time Ark asked Muir for a date, he was nervous. He said, would you like to go out on a date? She said, no, I think I'll have the glazed donut and a cup of hot cider. 
Ark figured Muir heard, would you like a piece of cake? He'd have to be more articulate. The second time Ark asked Muir for a date, she simply said, no. This didn't bother Ark. He knew it wouldn't be easy. He did sit-ups at home and brushed his teeth after meals. He bought a glossy magazine which claimed to know 101 ways to a woman's heart. Ark only needed one, so he chose, be confident. In his apartment, he practiced reaching into the refrigerator, keeping his arms straight, and saying, would you like to try a Danish? In a deep voice. Perhaps the hot, fresh French bread just out of the oven? The next time he asked her out, she said, no. Ark bought cologne, he shaved twice a day, and when she rejected him again, he didn't shave, though this got him in trouble with Darbray. He tried to act in coy, disinterested. When she pointed her finger at a muffin, he pretended it was no big deal. At the end of the night, mopping, he thought, damn, damn, damn. Two days later, Mr. Darbray said he was going into the city for a dough convention and asked Ark to lock up that evening. Ark waited until he saw Muir coming down the street in her scarf and sunglasses. He grabbed his pork pie hat and hurried outside to lock the door. Muir stopped next to Ark and said, what's this? Oh, Ark said casually, we had to close early. Something came up. She tried the door anyway. It was locked. There's a place around the corner that makes wonderful donuts, Ark said. Muir folded her arms. I feel badly. Let me buy you a donut. It's just a block away. Her scarf blew gently over her shoulder. Ark began walking backwards, beckoning Muir. Come on, he said. It's a magnificent day. Muir reluctantly followed at a slow pace. She had on blue shoes. The place sell, sold donuts only. Ark figured it would take her a while to get to the glazed kind. He wanted to put on his pork pie hat and the cologne he kept in his baker's apron, so he excused himself and made for the bathroom. When he tried the door, a man said, I'm in here, harshly. Ark waited. He put the hat on and tried to tilt it properly. He checked his image and his watch. Things were out of proportion, and the seconds were ticking. Eventually, Ark heard flushing in the bathroom, and was surprised when the door opened before the sound of running water and the automatic dryer. Obviously, he didn't wash up in there. A large man stepped from the bathroom and scowled. She's all yours, the man said, patting Ark roughly on the back. Inside, the bathroom had a tremendous stink, and the mirror had an odd film over it. Ark fiddled with his hat and tried to hold his breath. Then he put on cologne. Then he worried if he was going to smell like both the cologne and the large man's bowel movement. Ark washed up. Another man entered the room, the bathroom. He looked Ark over and said, Who boy! <laughs> Mir had eaten half her glazed donut and was seated at a table against the wall. Ark joined her. Hi, he said. I, sorry, I wanted to pay for that. Don't be silly, Mir said. Ark took out his wallet. Please, let me pay. What was it, three dollars? You're not paying for it. I make an honest living. Ark put his wallet away. What do you do, anyway? Mira pushed her sunglasses down enough to gaze over, uh, over them at Ark. I'm an actress. Really? You look like a movie star. Well, I'm not in the pictures yet. I'm in plays. Plays are good, too. I mean, you've got to be spontaneous, I'll bet. All those lines to memorize? I don't have any lines. Mir finished eating. The large man from the bathroom sat down with a tray full of jelly donuts at a table just behind Muir facing Ark. He watched Ark with heavy-lidded eyes and began cramming food in his mouth. Oh, no lines. Well, I'm sure you'll get some. Nobody has lines. It's performative and experimental. It's called The Dream Life of Insects. The large man licked his fingers and stared. It's about dreaming bugs? Insects, Muir emphasized. Which kind are you? Mira pushed her sunglasses up. She stood, tossed her scarf around her shoulders, and prepared to leave. Depends on the night. 
That night, Ark read about bugs. Then he bought an ant farm. He watched the ants make their little homes and dreamt of possibilities. When Muir next came in, he casually remarked, Oh, how I love the sound of katydids on a crisp October night. Muir didn't comment. She pointed to raisin bread. Ark sighed. He went for the bread. She said, on second thought, and pointed to a cannoli. Ark said, would you like to go out on a date? Muir said, no. And you know what? I think I'll take the glazed donut. Of course you will, Ark said, frustrated. Could you tell me why? Muir pushed her sunglasses down and sized Ark up. Ark stood on his toes and tried to relax his shoulders. You look like my brother, she said. Oh, Ark placed the glazed donut on the counter. I'll take hot chocolate today. Is your brother nice? Ark asked. He's fine. Do women find him attractive? <laughs> One woman did, I guess. He's married. Mira turned her back and carried her hot chocolate and glazed donut over to the window. An old woman entered the store and ordered coffee cake. Ark rang her up. She started to pay in low change. Ark couldn't wait to get her out of the bakery. Mira slurped her hot chocolate. She bit the glazed donut. Just take it, Ark whispered to the woman. What? It's on the house, Ark insisted as he set the cake in her hands. The lady smiled. It's all right. I've got some pennies at the bottom of my purse. She dug in. Mira was gazing thoughtfully into her cup. More hot chocolate? Ark asked. I didn't order hot chocolate, the woman said. I just want the coffee cake. I know, ma'am. I I was talking to the young lady behind you. Muir didn't move. The old woman finally paid and walked out of the bakery, mumbling to herself. Alone again with Muir, Ark asked, Is your brother happy? He's in Pennsylvania, she replied. Ark didn't know how to take this, so he nodded and nodded. As he mopped, Ark tried to remember the capital of Pennsylvania. Later, he borrowed an encyclopedia from his old neighbor who liked facts. He learned that Harrisburg was the capital. He discovered that Pennsylvania was one of the original 13 colonies. He memorized the state bird, motto, tree, and population. When Muir came into the bakery next, Ark said, Did you know Louisa May Alcott was from Pennsylvania? Muir said, Who? (laughs) She indicated cheesecake behind the glass. She wrote Little Women. Never read it. Me neither. Sounds good, though. You know, I don't think I'll take the cheesecake. Give me pumpkin pie. What do you think of virtue, liberty, and independence? What? It's Pennsylvania's motto. When I were there, those things weren't, Muir said dramatically. What do you mean? It's not easy being a woman in rural Pennsylvania. Ark accidentally stuck his thumb in the pumpkin pie. Interesting, he said. May I ask why? You couldn't possibly understand. Because I'm a man? Mm, I'll stick with the glazed donut, Muir said, pointing. Help me understand. The donut with the glaze right there? <laughs> you, I meant. I mean, you understand. You, I help me. Muir ignored this, paid, ate her donut, and left. That night, for punishment, Ark wrote the sentence, Help me understand you 1,000 times in a notebook. The pain he felt in his hand the next day was a small victory. Muir didn't come into the bakery for a week. When she did, Ark hadn't had time to get under his pork pie hat. He had been powdering donuts and was a mess. Flustered, Ark blurted, It's great to see you again. Muir smiled weakly. She looked irritated. Ark noticed her gloves. When she pointed her finger to the glass casing at a peanut butter cookie, she scratched her hand. Ark snatched the cookie like a pro. Muir stomped her foot, said, No, no. She pointed to cornbread, removed her gloves, and scratched her hands unmercifully. Through the glass casing over the cornbread, Ark regarded the red rash and blisters on her skin. Her nails dug deeply. Ark swallowed hard. Muir quickly put her gloves back on. It's just the chicken pox, Muir said. It'll go away soon. Ark straightened himself, scratched his own hands instinctively. No, I think the pox is a child's condition. It's the chicken pox, Muir insisted, as she swiveled toward the door.
Hey, no, Ark said. It's just a rash. Don't leave. Muir rushed outside and up the street. Ark checked up on the chicken pox. He was right. It normally affected kids. Stranger things have happened, Ark decided. He bought a bottle of calamine lotion from Muir's hands. He kept it in his pouch. Muir didn't come. Mopping, Ark thought, maybe the day after tomorrow. The day after tomorrow passed. Ark worried about the rash as a week went by. Customers pointed to things behind the casing, and Ark purposefully grabbed the wrong items in memory of Muir. This frustrated them. One customer, who was sleeping with Mr. Darbray, squealed on Ark. Darbray threatened termination if attitudes weren't adjusted. Ark found it impossible to adjust without Muir. All the pastries reminded him of her. Another week passed, and nothing good happened. He bought a city paper and found information on the dream life of insects. In a spurred moment, he wrote, So long, doughboy, on a paper napkin, and left the bakery early. On his way to the florist, Ark saw several houses in a row that had black plastic eagles over their garages. He tried to buy a mountain laurel from a florist. He explained that it was Pennsylvania's state flower. The best the florist could do was a rhododendron. Ark bought it. On his way to the bus stop, Ark noticed wind chimes on nearly every porch. They made noise. Leaves on the sidewalk scratched the concrete. The sky turned an honest purple, promising a storm. On the bus, Ark put his pork pie hat on just so, using the window as a mirror. Outside, buildings leapt to the darkening sky. Ark read the back of the calamine lotion bottle. It was supposed to calm the itch. He wondered why the stuff was pink. Off the bus, the wind played through the city and threatened to tear Ark's hat from his head. Rain introduced night. The dream life of insects was not playing on the main drag. It was in an old movie theater, which Ark passed twice without noticing. This made him late. The ticket taker breathed so loudly Ark had to raise his voice to purchase the expensive pass. The performance was through double doors. The theater had three sections and a balcony. There was a decent crowd, Ark noticed, and a scent of perfume. It was darker than he thought necessary. A spotlight darted erratically across the stage. Ark walked a few feet down the aisle and realized that everybody on stage was naked, except Muir. She had on red arm-length gloves. Including Muir, four women crawled across the stage. Near the front, a musician played a viola. The sound was meant to be creepy. Ark's arms dropped to his side. The rhododendron nearly touched the floor. Actresses rubbed themselves and rolled over each other. The spotlight pinned Muir. She was on her back, stretching her legs out, arms up. The three other women positioned themselves in a circle next to her. They put their legs up and their arms flat to the stage. They turned into a spider. Muir's red arms were supposed to be fangs, and her body was the open mouth. Eight legs thrashed. From above, a huge white net descended until it rest on their feet. Somehow, a rope got between Muir's legs. The person on the viola sawed the strings frantically, creating a buzzing noise. A woman behind Muir, hands nearly out of sight, pulled the rope. Stage left, a small naked man with a pair of rubber fly wings stumbled into view. Muir shook her arms. Ark imagined they itched terribly. Obviously, the rash had spread. Calamine lotion should be applied soon before things got out of hand, Ark reasoned. The naked fly man moved closer to Muir. A bigger fly man came out, attached to the rope, stage left. Then another, and still more, each increasing in size. Ark wondered if they'd ever stop. Spiders don't just gorge themselves to death. The women's legs kicked faster as the first fly man got on his hands and knees and crawled between Muir's arms and over her body. Ark saw their genitalia touch for a moment. Then the spider swallowed him. The viola saw it faster. Ark thought, maybe this isn't a good idea. 
A booming voice from a megaphone backstage chanted, Come into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Come, come, come. The viola went berserk. This was the first time Ark had seen Muir without sunglasses. She had a look of worn triumph on her face. Ark stepped down the aisle. He slipped into a row and found a seat. The seat was warm as if it had been waiting for him, or warm as if someone had just gotten up and walked away. He sat and tried to enjoy the show. He couldn't understand why the woman had to be a naked spider. Uh, sorry. He felt uncomfortable watching the larger and larger bear fly men and their tiny wings. He looked at his knees and thought, I'm not very cultured. Eventually, the man on the megaphone stopped chanting. The fly men disappeared. The net was lifted above the stage with the women holding on, and the viola ceased. A curtain dropped. The spotlight widened to cast a soft light over the entire stage, and the, and the audience applauded. Ark set the calamine and lododendron on the sticky floor and clapped his hands. The women came out in robes to curtsy. Muir curtsied twice. Then the fly men came out in shorts and one by one bowed. The lights came up and Ark noticed he was underdressed. Most men had ties and jackets and no hats. Women wore nice skirts. Ark tried to get backstage. He was shown the exit. Outside, rain fell and splattered off the streets. Ark made his way to the back of the theater. He saw a door he assumed the actors used to exit. He waited in shadows against a wall. The rhododendron was damaged in the heavy rain. His pork pie hat did what it could to keep the wet off of Ark's face. The door opened and laughter spilled out. Huddled actors hurried toward the street. Muir was not among them. She came out beneath the arm of one of the muscular fly men who carried a striped umbrella. Muir, Ark said, stepping forward. The fly man was startled and stepped in front of Muir. I'm a friend, Ark stated. The fly man didn't relax. I work at the bakery. Do you know this creep? The fly man asked. Muir pushed her sunglasses down and tried to place Ark. I recognize that hat, she said. He works at the bakery. I brought you a rhododendron. It's the closest they had to the mountain laurel. The fly man rolled his eyes. He took Muir's gloved hand. That flower looks beaten, Muir said. It's been through a lot. I don't want it. Ark tossed the rhododendron aside. You probably get flowers all the time. Why did you come here? You haven't been to the bakery in a while. I thought you might need calamine for your rash. You have a rash? The fly man asked. It's the chicken pox, and I already have some. It doesn't work. I could find something stronger. No, don't. Just, it just needs time. Go home. I agree. Everything takes time. You need extra time to decide at the bakery, but you always figure it out. One day you'll see I'm like the glazed donut. Is it contagious? The flyman asked. It's on my arms. That's why I've been wearing gloves. You could be so dense sometimes. Muir took her hand back and folded her arms. She turned to Ark and said, Goodbye. See you at the bakery, Ark said, lifting his hat. Muir turned and walked away. The flyman had to hurry to keep her under the umbrella. For a moment, their feet made impressions in the wet street before the rain washed them away. The next morning, Ark begged for his job back. Darbray said the comment about his weight hurt. Ark tried to explain himself, but didn't really know how. He clasped his hands and lowered his head like in prayer. Darbray wasn't religious, but he forgave Ark, with conditions. Everything needed to be cleaned, and Darbray installed a pivoting security camera to keep an eye on Ark. Ark didn't mind. He considered his journey into the city a success. He had written down a list of complimentary things to say about Muir's part in The Dream Life of Insects. First, he would mention how lovely her eyes are. 
With a ladder, Art could reach the air vents. He had a wire brush and a small bucket of soapy water which he used to clean between the slats. He worked his way from the middle into the corners. He thought about a future with Muir. Someday he'd own the bakery. She'd be his wife and the children would be plump and happy with homemade pastries. Ark bumped his head on the security camera. He nearly dropped the bucket and fell, but managed to hold on and regain his balance. He looked into the insect black lens of the camera to adjust his paper hat. His image multiplied and refracted in the security camera's faceted eye. In that instant, the bakery was filled with miniature arcs, all holding a bucket with a crooked hat and glazed over eyes. Then the camera swung away and Ark was left alone. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be read to, isn't it? Something we don't allow ourselves often enough, I think. Our next author is a graduate of the University of Tampa program of their first cohort. Nathan Jewell has contributed essays, fiction, and criticism to the New York Times, Financial Times, GQ, The New Republic, Times Literary Supplement, Virginia Quarterly Review, the Paris Review, Salon, he's been busy, don't you think? Previously, he was an editor at Rolling Stone and the Village Voice. He holds an, I'm reading the wrong one. No, I'm not. I'm reading the right one. <laughs> okay. He holds an MFA from the University of Tampa. Ah, and a BA in literature from Brown University. And he attended Deep Springs College. He has recently moved to Los Angeles from Beirut with his wife and daughter, and today he's going to be reading from Friday Was the Bomb. Thanks a lot for coming. Thanks to Greg and City Lit, all of you for being here. Uh, yeah, so Friday Was the Bomb comes out May 13th. This is the first time I'm technically reading from it as an actual book. A uh, piece I'm going to read, I wrote for GQ a couple years ago. Um, and that Parker guy over there edited it and made it, made, it, made it better, I think. Okay. Because I called Beirut home, and because an American TV show called Homeland won a bunch of awards depicting my home, and because this depiction focused on Hamra Street, which I crossed a dozen times a day en route to my butcher, baker, gym, my child's school, and the cafe where I write, and because this depiction was ham-handed enough to have enraged the Minister of Tourism, who is spending millions attempting to lure tourists back to a beautiful and tragic city, and on top of all that, because the show was originally an Israeli TV pilot, an agonizing fact for a country still technically at war with, that is, with Israel, and as if that weren't bad enough, because the purported Beirut scenery was reportedly shot on location in the Israeli towns of Tel Aviv and Haifa, I decided one Friday to describe a typical day on Hamra Street, which turned out to be much more like an episode of Homeland than I ever would have imagined. I normally walk my three-year-old to school, but this Friday she wakes with a fever for her third day in a row, so instead I take her to the doctor. I call Hussein, who arrives in a lightly armored Mercedes. Loretta's pissed she's not going to class, so she squirms and kicks my seat. I beg her to sit still and look out the window. 
We pass the Saudi embassy where 200 people stand baking in the sun, waiting for their visas, which they need in order to complete Hajj, the annual pilgrimage that all Muslims are compelled to complete at least once. To prevent corruption, the Saudis annually give each country a number of Hajj visas proportional to each nation's Muslim population. So pretty much anyone standing in line on a sizzling October and Friday in 2012 has won a spot in the lottery. Spots are offered randomly and with shockingly little corruption, so the people in line are a motley and diverse mix, not my neighborhood's typical crowd of college kids, sad old men, and rich businessmen with their trophy wives. There's hardcore Bedouin guys in dirty robes and checkered headdresses, alongside wide packs of women wearing abayas. The line pulses against metal barriers, and soldiers with guns stand beside an armored personnel carrier nearby a series of giant asterisk-shaped iron ties installed in the road to prevent anyone from parking close enough to to detonate a booby-trapped car. We arrive at the hospital, which is affiliated with Johns Hopkins. The doctor frowns, telling me Lorette has been sick so long, we need blood work and a urine culture. At the lab, I hold my daughter in my arms, and she shudders. Daddy, it hurts, she says, and I apply pressure to the needle's entry point. Back at home, the babysitter arrives. Loretta naps, and I throw on a light cotton shirt for the walk downtown, where I'll meet a friend for lunch. The, t- the path takes me the entire length of Hamra Street. I pass the shuttered Applebee's, which will reopen elsewhere. My liquor store, which lately stocks Maker's Mark. The post office, where I'm sad not to discover the book I need to review, but happy enough to find the last two issues of The New Yorker. And the local headquarters of the Syrian Socialist National Party, or SSNP, which is aligned with the Syrian regime. In an alley, I spot a guy with a series of snakes and barbed wire tattooed to his arms and neck. He's making coffee on a machine set into the back of a busted-up minivan on blocks. He glares at me, and I see in his eyes a guy who would happily beat me to death. Posters of what I assume are martyrs have been pasted to surrounding walls, and the swastika-looking flag of the SSMP is sagging from poles bolted to the walls of surrounded buildings. Downtown, which had been rubble until five years ago when it was recast as a luxury mall, Mike and I share a lunch of Lebanese salads and a tureen of hummus. Mike's wife will give birth to their son at the end of the month, and they've tried to meet every member of the hospital staff, imploring them not to give her any drugs during the delivery. Reviewing the plan, Mike's wife asked him, Are you sure you can watch me writhe in pain? Mike admits he's not sure. I told him about how our daughter had been born in Riyadh and that we'd fought to have a natural birth. We talk about all the people we know have died last winter and spring. Marie and Anthony and a French photographer named Remy and our mutual friend John, amongst others. I tell Mike I thought about not coming back this summer, staying in America forever, and I take a bite of hummus and bemoan how dark and unnatural it is to live voluntarily beside the miasma of death and destruction that is Syria. I realize that for those who watch Homeland, Beirut must seem as dark as it does to us equally as unnatural. And some of that is rooted in reality, in the persistent echo of years-old news stories. In a taxi on the way back to Hamra, I pass the site of the massive car bomb that killed the Prime Minister in 2005. The driver takes a shortcut, and I see the Hilton Hotel Tower, owned by Kuwaiti royalty, ruined in skirmishes during Lebanon's 15-year civil war, trees growing from suites on the upper floors. But on first glance, the view along most of the streets around here look a lot like Queens, New York. Likewise, on first glance, you might conclude Homeland is a reasonably nuanced portrait of the war on terror, whatever that is. It's a portrait, anyway. The second season brought the action to Beirut, where CIA agents were made to grapple with a neighborhood that was hilariously, to people who live there, crawling with snipers and warlords. The scene that allegedly depicted Hammer Street, where you'll find two busy lanes of traffic at all times, cutting through a series of thriving restaurants and nightclubs, a crown plaza, and a new H&M, showed a narrow little alley lined with sandbags and desert people, everyone waiting to be shot at. 
On those same blocks in real life, on the day I want you, I, I want to show you all how nice Beirut is, I stop at Cafe Eunice in the center of Hamra, where most afternoons I crack open a laptop for a few hours and nurse a French press. The syrupy voice of Lebanese singer Fayrouz bleeds from the cafe's speakers, and every table is packed with students and reporters and silver-haired amateur philosophers and Syrian activists and grizzled NGO workers. Next door is an art gallery. Hanging from a pole in front is an arty jumble of rebar, bits of concrete sticking to the metal, the whole thing lit up by fairy lights. A fan above spins lazily. At 3 p.m., the power goes out and no one notices. You can literally set your watch by the outages here. Now, it's easy to assume Homeland didn't bother to send any scouts to Beirut. The tickets are expensive. It's just as easy to poke fun at their solution, send a bunch of actors to Israel. But don't we accept this of fiction? Haven't we always? You make choices, you build a space, you choose your details, and whatever you build, whether on the page or on the screen, it's never complete. That's not Beirut, you say. What makes Homeland's portrayal downright silly is the incongruity between the Beirut in the show and the Beirut in which I'm raising our daughter. As if on cue, however, reality and fiction converge. The power flickers on and my Twitter feed loads. A car bomb has just exploded across town. My phone won't th- excuse me. My phone won't dial out. I spill hot coffee on my foot. I feel punched in the face. The explosion wasn't far from where I had lunch, and I flashed to Mike, his wife, their unborn child. I watch a girl sip a strawberry smoothie, a boy bite into a sandwich, and an old man struggle to plug in a new iPhone. A sexy lady is smoking jetons by the window, and her boyfriend lights a marble light. I scramble across the news updates on an internet that barely functions, trying to figure out what's going on, and the cafe owner's daughter leans on a car outside, smoothing her curly hair. Emails start flying around. Can you get to the street by car? The phones aren't working. A photo. It looks small. No injuries? Then another photo. Lots of damage. One dead. You should use Blackberry Messenger to get through. It's two dead. Two? Only two? A dozen wounded. Security sources are confirming. No. Definitely many more dead. More than 100 wounded, a giant crater. In the rush of information, time slows down, and I take in the event as if watching drama on TV. But this action is taking place just three miles from where I sit peacefully in my favorite cafe. The waiter brings more coffee. A scooter, squir- a scooter squirts by, roaring up Hamra, making its little burping noises. A man and woman embrace on a couch. That girl I've seen around, probably a freshman at the local design school, is wearing a blue feather in her hair and there are pink caps on the tips of her little leather Oxfords. She's upset about something. She takes a seat, and she scribbles in a notebook, holding back tears. I make the mistake of looking at some grisly photos from the bomb site. I still have not heard from Mike. Cars are mangled, and several firefighters stand in the smoking wreck that was once someone's apartment. The death toll is now eight in some reports, three in others. In one shot, a woman covered in blood is fainting. In another photo, I see what looks like the brains of a ten-year-old girl. An alert pops up on my phone, a reminder that Loretta's swim lesson is tomorrow at 4.30. If my life were a TV show, this might be the moment I have some kind of epiphany. Instead, heading home from the cafe, I stop for wine and a handle of whiskey, and I pass a young boy with 30 fingernails, flipping through a gun catalog. Tofu is back in stock at the health store, and the phones are working again. Mike calls. I just wanted to let you know we're okay, he says. There's an American tourist in Wrangler jeans looking up, guidebook in her hand, and I get a good look at her long white throat. A man, in front of, a man in front of his clothing boutique argues about the cut of a shelf in his remodeled front window. Back at home trying to remain calm, Kelly and I invite our friend Richard and his daughter to come by. His wife is on assignment in Libya, and none of us want to be alone. I offer to stir up a round of Manhattans. Richard, who is from Wales, says he's never had one. I mix, and we stare at our phones, seeking more information about our lives. And as it comes, our little girls run around cutting things with scissors. 
turns out one of the <coughs> country's top intelligence chiefs is amongst it turns out that one of the country's top intelligence chiefs is among the dead. We brace ourselves for the additional ugliness that is sure to come. And into each drink I carefully spoon a bright red cherry. I hand Richard his Manhattan, and he says he feels like a character in Mad Men. I feel the sting of the Hollywood comparison. He takes a sip, and I wait for his reaction. You Americans like everything so sweet, he says. Later, I walk outside toward Hammer Street, an American in Beirut. Sorry. <laughs> Heading to an ATM for some extra money just to be on the safe side. My life is not a TV show. The streets are eerily quiet. If someone in Hollywood had written this, my character would do something brave. Or something stupid. Or maybe he'd get killed. In the faint light of a street lamp, a family of three is walking toward me, and they're all licking ice cream cones. Thank you. That's it. <laughs> and last but not least... The founding director of the program, Jeff Parker. Jeff is the author of several books, including Where Bears Roam the Streets, a Russian journal, published by HarperCollins, the novel Oven Man, published by Tin House, and the short story collection, The Taste of Penny, a Zank publication. He co-edited the anthologies Raskazi, New Fiction from a New Russia, also Tin House, and America, Russian Writers View the United States, Dalki Archive. He also co-translated the novel Sankhya, also published by Zank, by Zakhar Prilepin from the Russian. He's the director of the Disquiet International Literary Program in Lisbon, teaches in the MFA program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and as I mentioned, is the founding director of Tampa's MFA program. Jeff Parker. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks so much for coming and uh, hanging out. I'm just going to read, but I want to say one thing about friendship. And uh, these two guys, and I want to include uh, good friend Erica, the great thing about them is you can say the stupidest stuff around them and they never hold it against you, you know? Those are the best friends. Um, we always knew we were going to do a Nathan sandwich here, but Ockert and I flipped for uh, first and last, so uh, my station as closer is purely by chance. It's called Two Roosters in 50 Years. The rooster of my youth was Generalissimo Arujo Cougar Alligator Falcon Antonio, but no one besides me could ever remember it, and so he was just General Falcon. I spent all my time with him. When he was a striped, fluffy chick, we sat in the tall grass together, his droppings perpetually dotting my lap, and I squeezed him too hard while he pecked at spit-like wads of tree frog eggs. I defended him from the bullying hens. hens. Over time, his comb bloomed, his spurs sprouted into pointed knobs, half flesh and half bone, and his demeanor shifted. One day, upon entering the chicken coop, I saluted him and said, as I always said, Reporting for duty, General Falcon, sir. 
He scraped his foot in the sand and lowered his head. He bucked in a low, throaty way. His eyes fixed on me. He heaved and wagged. I distributed the feed among the troughs, one eye on the ground so as not to step in the ubiquitous chicken shit, the other eye on General Falcon. There is a kind of current that flashes through a body, human or foul, in the moment before it strikes. The mind plans the action instantaneously before the body executes it. I registered the current preempting General Falcon's lunge, and on reflex, I kicked him. My instinct was to pick him back up, brush him off, set things right. But I ran. I fled through the coop door. I tore down the hill, glancing back over my shoulder, and it was a good thing that I hadn't gone with my instinct. General Falcon was right on my ass. His open beak emitted a terrible sound. For the first time in my life, I knew sheer terror. He had been my greatest friend to that point, and in the midst of this terror and betrayal, and even though he was pursuing me at that very moment, leaping feet first, his spurs grazing my back, that terrible, terrible sound, guilt flooded my chest. The general lunged again and finally landed it, his spurs gouging my shoulder blades and his beak digging into my neck. I flailed my arms and spun and he fell. I reached the door of our house, our family's little chicken coop, and slammed it behind me. General Falcon battled the door for some time, and then everything went silent. My mother discovered me sitting with my bloody back against the door, and she took me to the bathroom. As she picked General Falcon's downy feathers from my hair and dabbed my wounds with hydrogen peroxide, I rationalized. Maybe General Falcon was just in a mood that day. Maybe I had provoked him. Maybe it was me. Maybe this was a phase. Maybe he would change. Maybe, maybe. The next day I fashioned a shield of sorts from an empty 80-pound feed bag and I armed myself with a yellow wiffle ball bat. Reporting for duty, General Falcon, sir, I said. This was me greeting antagonism with officiousness and cheer for the first time. He attacked the FRM bag. I smacked the wiffle ball bat against the bag to frighten him. Those who know me are nodding their heads right now. But whether I provoked General Falcon or whether I'd done something to him or not, this was not a mood or a phase. It was not me. He would not change. This was him. My mother arranged for the lady at the end of the road to do the deed. And on Christmas Eve, I went out armed with my feed bag shield and my yellow wiffle sword, and General Falcon was gone. He appeared on a platter at dinner. No one acknowledged anything, but we knew. The affair was solemn, and little, if any, pleasure was derived from it. What I mean to say is that when we ate Generalissimo, Arujo, Cougar, Alligator, Falcon, Antonio for Christmas dinner, he was a gray and stringy corpse, as tough and dry as nails. Several lives gone by, it was a half century before I gathered the muster to take another rooster. 
I refrained from giving this one a proper Christian name. And even now I think of him, and I think of him often, as the rooster of my later years. At first I maintained some distance, but memories of the warmth of my youth with the pre-transformation General Falcon rushed back to me every time I saw him. And soon I spent all my time with the rooster of my later years, petting him, nuzzling him, kissing him, yes, nuzzling and kissing him. I still bought the 80-pound bags of corn feed. I fed him the FRM corn directly from my hand. He lived with some boring hens and hens. Why can't I say hens? He lived with some boring hens in the coop out back under a massive cherry tree. And for one whole season, he evinced no interest whatsoever in the fruit. The cherries fell, they rotted and fermented all over the yard and in the dirt of the coop. Who knows what drove him one day to eat a cherry? It's occurred to me that he recognized the scent of alcohol on my breath, a fruit-forward wine, perhaps, in a cherry fermenting among tall blades of grass. However it happened, it happened. Early in the next season, as soon as the fruit began to drop, I noticed him stumbling goofily around the yard. The loose gait so alarming in a wasted human being was charming and delightful to behold in a chicken. He keeled adorably left and right, and his neck lopped forward and back. I ate dinner on the patio and watched him, and I have to admit, for some time his antics amused me a great deal. He bowed up at a stoic squirrel. He attempted to mount a vaguely hen-shaped rock. He rolled an egg into the yard with his head. I should have anticipated the consequences. How much could he drink when each fermented cherry was larger than his brain? The equivalent of who knows how many shots of hard liquor to a human. Before long, he stumbled into a rose bush and put out his eye. He ran full tilt into the brick sidewalls of the house, knocking himself unconscious. He wandered into the road, mistaking, I can only assume, the thin strip of median for our wide yard. I attempted an intervention, moving him into a separate enclosure on the edge of our property, far away from the cherry tree. But the DTs came on quick. By nightfall, he'd already pecked off two of his toes. So I let him loose again, and he bolted back to the tree, scarfing cherries as he went. He chased me now and then, but these flimsy attacks required neither a feed bag nor a wiffle ball bat. There was no flash that went through his body. He keeled angrily toward me, and I needed only step aside. One thing he did well was lean. He was in fact the only bird that I have ever seen lean. He leaned against the side of the coop for hours, clucking that empty eye like a prolonged wink. And if you wedged a cigarette between the remaining toes on his bad foot, you might have mistook him for a chicken James Dean. Gallant, handsome, cool just like his master. 
Some nights I came out and leaned against the side of the house, watching him lean against the side of the coop. We leaned and consumed our poisons of choice. And after a while, I joined him in the yard, the two of us swerving and balking and capsizing together under the moonlight. I woke up under the cherry tree next to him more than a few mornings. We woke, and I looked into his bloodshot eyes and felt that I had a true friend. That I had the deepest connection to a rooster that any man short of a pervert could have. (laughs) Then I retreated inside for another bottle, and he beaked around the yard for his own fix. One day, as I approached the coop, squishing cherries under my feet, I spied him from a distance, and I thought at first that he was having a long drink of water. I saw his cute little tail sticking up, but he didn't right himself as I neared. I noticed the awkward positioning of his body, his feet slightly off the ground, the two remaining toes pointing straight down. In the middle of the previous night, I had considered coming out and joining him for one of our benders. Had I joined him, I wondered, might I have saved my gentle, boozy friend, or might we both have drowned in his water dish? Pointless questions because I asserted my humanity and fell asleep in front of the TV. His body was already stiff, and his beak was stained red. I dug a good hole near the trunk of the cherry tree and buried him. Time is sad. Let him fertilize his habit, I figured, for what's left to him of eternity. For what's left me of mine, I sit here on the back patio, staring at a bunch of sober fucking hens. (laughs) Thanks so much, guys. And let's see, we now have, uh, actually our time would appear to be up, but um, 2.50. So thank you so much for coming. They're off the hook on question and answers. So perhaps if you have questions for these gentlemen, you will come up and you will have the opportunity to speak to them on their own. And thank you so much for coming.